Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining today's conference call. I'm Elizabeth Kerr with Business Forward, and I'll be moderating our conversation today. Currently, all lines are in listen-only mode. We're pleased to welcome Ariel Kane, who's the Director of Healthcare at the Progressive Policy Institute. She's here to talk about how improvements to the Affordable Care Act could create a more stable healthcare system that um, increases, improves access to affordable care across the country. This will be an interactive briefing, so after her presentation, we'll have time for your questions and comments. For those of you who are new to our programming, Business Forward organizes local roundtables, Washington fly-ins, conference calls, webinars like this one, and media trainings for more than 100,000 business leaders across America. And at these briefings, entrepreneurs, investors, small business owners, and executives all get the chance to brief policymakers on issues affecting their businesses and to give advice about how Washington can work better with businesses to accelerate the economy. To date, more than 600 mayors and governors, members of Congress, policy experts, and senior administration officials have participated in our programming, and that's thanks to the support of more than 60 of America's largest and most respected companies. Before I get started, uh, we need to cover just a few housekeeping items. First, as part of the email confirmation you received after registering for this event, it should say Open Visual Interface. If you click on that link, you can follow along with a PowerPoint presentation to accompany Ariel's remarks. Uh, the slides are also available on our website at businessfwd.org. Just look for a post on the front page advertising this event. You can click on that and follow along on the website. As I mentioned, there will be time for questions and comments, and there's two ways that you can participate. Uh, first, you can press 1 at any time on your telephone keypad, and you'll get entered into the queue to ask a question live. Or you can email us your question at info at businessfwd.org, and I'll read that aloud for you. So again, if you'd like to ask a question, just press 1 to be entered into the queue to ask your question live, or you can email us your question to info at businessfwd.org. Uh, when you email a question, please include your name and your business. Um, and your location. Tell us where you're, where you're writing from. Um, and when I call on you to ask a live question also, please introduce yourself with your name and your business, and again, where you're calling from. And we'll get in as many questions as we can. Uh, finally, I just wanted to remind everybody that this webinar is being recorded, and it will be posted on our website after this call. So with that, uh, let's get started. Please welcome Ariel Kane. Ariel, go ahead. Good afternoon, everyone, or good morning, I suppose, if you're on the West Coast. Um, uh, my name is Ariel Kane. I'm the director of healthcare at the Progressive Policy Institute, which is a left-leaning think tank in Washington, D.C. I've worked in health policy for about 10 years in a variety of capacities, and this presentation will provide a short summary of the current healthcare climate, a status update of the Affordable Care Act, and a few policy recommendations for what can come next. So with that, let's go ahead and get started, and we can go to the next slide. So I don't know if you've noticed, but healthcare has been in the news a lot lately. And there are a number of reasons why. First of all, the Trump administration has made a number of policy changes that go after the Affordable Care Act. They repealed the individual mandate, they stopped paying cost-sharing reduction payments, and they are allowing the sale of short-term health plans. They have signed on to a lawsuit that challenges the legality of the ACA in the absence of the individual mandate. Democrats have a polling advantage in healthcare. And depending on the poll, you know, depends on what it says, but they are trying to capitalize on the fact that voters prefer Democrats on health care to Republicans in the lead up to the midterm elections. So they're trying, they're 
working to keep health care in the news. They're drawing attention to candidates who have voted to abolish protections for pre-existing conditions. Some are calling for Medicare for all, and they are internally debating what is the next best path forward. Additionally, healthcare costs will always keep healthcare top of mind for business leaders, state policymakers, and federal lawmakers. The reality is costs are still really high. There's high out-of-pocket costs for those in the individual market, and employers are bearing a large portion of those healthcare costs, even as costs are shifted to employees through high deductible health plans and increased cost sharing. This is also what's keeping it top of mind of the business community. There's all the ongoing rhetoric about pre-existing conditions and Medicare for all, you know, makes, makes both the healthcare industry and the overall business community nervous. Most would prefer to see the employer-sponsored health insurance system continue and don't want a crazy amount of upheaval um, in, in, in the process of moving towards Medicare for all. So if we go to the next slide, here are a few points around, despite all this rhetoric, the ACA is actually working. After years of turmoil, premiums are stabilizing, even though some still do slip through the cracks. This year, average premiums on the health insurance exchanges actually fell 1.5%. There's a number of reasons why. One, insurers have increased premiums dramatically over the last few years, and they finally got the formula more correct, and so now they can drop it. They would be dropping more in the absence of the policy changes that I mentioned before. Um, premiums are still really high. The average premium for a silver plan is a $406 for next year. And if you aren't eligible for subsidies, that's very expensive to pay each month out of pocket. Um, so that being said, I, I just think it's really important to acknowledge that even though it is stabilizing and the ACA is working, it's not working for everyone. And people still you know, slip through the cracks and can't afford the care they need. Premiums are still very expensive. And that's particularly true for those who are ineligible for subsidies. So if we go to the next slide, I just wanted to give a short history of the Affordable Care Act. When it was signed into law, the uninsured rate of the non-elderly population was about 19%. That was in 2010. 2012, the Supreme Court upheld major provisions. And in 2013, we had the first open enrollment period. We all know how that went, not particularly well. Um, and since then, there have been a number of changes that, that we're still seeing the effects of today. Um, last year, the Trump administration decided to stop paying cost-sharing reduction payments. I'll explain the significance in the next slide. And beginning in 2018, the individual mandate was repealed. Because of these types of changes, the uninsured rate of the non-elderly population has sort of stagnated around 12.5%. And that's because either, you know, the people that are staying uninsured are either because costs are too high or because of their immigration status. Undocumented immigrants are not eligible for Medicaid or subsidies. And legal immigrants are only eligible for Medicaid after five years of receiving their qualified immigration status. I think it's also important to notice that there's the only group who doesn't receive any form of government assistance for their health care are those who are above 400% of the federal poverty level. 
Those of us who are lucky enough to have employer-sponsored coverage receive about a 30% government subsidy in the form of the tax exemption. Those who have Medicare or Medicaid have government-sponsored you know, insurance. And those who are below 400% of the federal poverty level in the individual market receive assistance. So it's that one group of, of people that, that really struggle. This is just a quick, so if you go to the next slide, I have a quick summary of the policy changes that have been approved under the Trump administration. Um, last summer, they tried to repeal the whole Affordable Care Act and failed because of Senators John McCain, Susan Collins, and Lisa Murkowski. Uh, last October, they stopped paying cost-sharing reduction payments. Cost-sharing reduction payments are a subsidy to insurance companies to cover the cost of discounts that they are required by law to give to low-income beneficiaries. When they stopped paying those payments, the insurance companies just shifted the cost of those subsidies to premiums, so premiums increased in cost. But premium subsidies are attached to the overall average cost of premiums. And so if this makes sense, subsidies went up as premiums went up. I'm so sorry, my dog just barked. Um, and subsidies went up as premiums went up. And so a lot of people actually could buy more comprehensive coverage for cheaper. The one group, of course, who couldn't are those at 400% or above of the federal poverty level. Their premiums went up, and they don't get subsidies, and so their costs went up. That's the group that was hurt the most. Um, in February, a group of 20 Republican attorney generals signed onto a lawsuit that challenges the constitutionality of the ACA without the individual mandate. I'm not a lawyer, and I can't go into the intricacies of the case, but essentially they're arguing that the law can't be severed from the individual mandate. And so if Congress has repealed the individual mandate, the whole case, the whole law must be thrown out. The Trump administration has said that they won't defend the law. So this case is sort of working through the courts and we'll see what happens, but it could be a really, really big deal. Um, in August of this year, the Trump administration approved the sale of health insurance plans that do not re uh, meet the requirements of the Affordable Care Act. These are so-called short-term limited duration health plans, though they can last up to one year. And these plans don't have to cover pre-existing conditions, don't have to have out-of-pocket caps, don't have to cover maternity care, you know, all the things that uh, basically led to the Affordable Care Act to begin with. Um, the, these plans are now working their way back into the market. So if we go ahead to the next slide. To further compound the issue I, I mentioned earlier about why we still have, you know, 12.5% uninsured rate, um, all the states in gray have not yet expanded Medicaid. This, these are, tend to be, you know, what we call red states or red-leaning states that are led by Republican governors or Republican um, state legislatures. And if you're a low-income person who doesn't have a child, you... Um, might not be able to afford an individual health plan on the individual market. If you're below 138% of the federal poverty level, you don't get subsidies because the idea was those people would be on Medicaid. However, without the expansion of Medicaid, um, childless adults are not eligible. 
So those people continue to sort of fall through the cracks and, you know, might not have a lot of options if they don't get health insurance through work. I think, um, you know, another important thing to note is that just last week, the Trump administration announced that states may allow insurers to sell short-term limited-duration health plans, those plans I just mentioned on the previous slide, on their exchanges. The reason why this is a significant policy change is because these plans don't have to meet the rules of the ACA-compliant plans. And by allowing them to be sold on the exchanges, this means that taxpayer subsidies can be used to purchase these health plans. This won't just automatically happen. States will have to seek approval to do this. But I think it's safe to say that this will perpetuate the two-tiered system we're seeing evolve. And blue states won't allow for the sale of these plans on exchanges, and red states will. The problem, of course, when you have these type of plans being sold is that people like me who are healthy, who you know aren't pregnant, who don't you know, anticipate needing a lot of care, can buy a cheap health plan. However, everyone who either, you know, plans on having a baby or has a pre-existing health condition or anticipates a surgery will buy into the plans that, that require coverage of all those conditions. This means that those plans don't have anyone who's cheap and it raises the cost pool of everyone, whereas the cheaper plans get even cheaper because no one expensive is on that group. So it just further stratifies the population and makes it hard to spread risk. So if we go to the next slide, I wanted to touch on, you know, I've been talking a lot about the individual market, which is a lot of what the ACA focused on. Um, however, that's a very small piece of the puzzle because roughly half of the U.S. population gets their health insurance coverage through work. Um, more or less, premiums are remain, have remained stable in 2018 and going into 2019. But you know, a recent study out by the Kaiser Family Foundation basically found that there's a lot of variation depending on the size of the firm, depending on, um, just depending on a lot of things, where they're located, et cetera. And, you know, as inflation has gone up and wages have increased, unfortunately, a lot of that is being absorbed into the increasing cost of healthcare. Um, I, I made a note here that wages increased 2.5% and inflation increased 2.5%. And so they're kind of, you know, people aren't seeing their wages increase even as they're going up. Um, and costs have gone up a ton, like I said. So when you require health insurance to cover all these benefits, of course it's going to be more expensive. It's expensive to cover maternity care. It's expensive to cover pre-existing conditions. And when you spread that cost around the employer market, you see that premiums have increased about 20% um, since 2013 and 55% since 2008 which is a lot, and it's more expensive at small firms. Workers in small firms tend to contribute a higher portion of their premiums um, than people in larger firms, even though there are exceptions. Some small firms um, do cover 100% of employers' healthcare costs, uh, which is very generous. So that's just kind of a lay of the land. There's a lot happening, but I think it just further emphasizes the point that cost is going to be the driving issue of change. And if we go to the next slide, you'll see that the average cost per person in the United States per year is about $10,000, and that adds up to $3.3 trillion annually in total healthcare spending. That's about, about a fifth of the GDP, or maybe a sixth, uh, is spent on healthcare. And 
I, I think that, you know, this is the, the root of the issue. If, the, you know, we can talk about coverage, we can talk about all these things, but if people can't afford the care, they can't access the innovation, it could continue to be a problem. And, you know, while the system might work for a large swath of the population, as long as there are people slipping through the cracks, unable to afford their premiums or their insulin or their immunotherapy, there's going to be a demand on lawmakers to do something. So if we go to the final slide, I have six um, kind of policy recommendations for how we can work to stabilize the Affordable Care Act. Um, the irony is if the Affordable Care Act failed, uh, you know, as the, Re the Republican Congress and the Trump administration tries to kind of undo the Affordable Care Act, it's going to increase people's demand for a government-based solution. The Affordable Care Act is a market-based, very industry-friendly policy solution. And if that doesn't work, people are going to want the government to intervene and to solve the problem. So here are some recommendations I have for you know, building on the ACA. First of all, like I said, the individual market, and particularly that groups of people above 400% of the federal poverty level, there's more we can do for them. We could do greater premium. Um, subsidies, a reinsurance proposal, you know, reinstate the individual mandate. All those things would help shore up the individual market. Drug pricing. Uh, there, there are a lot of misaligned incentives in the drug industry, and there are ways to better align value um, and price. And I think in particular that's, that's clear in the PBM sector, and, you know, we could base um, payments more on the value of the drug and encourage value rather than rebates. Um, and that wouldn't be a hard policy change. Uh, three, healthcare costs. I think as long as people can't afford insulin, we're going to keep hearing about it. And so we need to focus on ways that may, maybe if there's you know, monthly caps rather than annual caps, but ways to keep out of uh, pocket costs down. Uh, the fourth policy recommendation I have is a robust reinsurance proposal. The first three years of the ACA included reinsurance. Uh, however, the program expired. It's actually a permanent feature in Medicare Advantage and in Medicare Part D. And I think it would also, um, you know, behoove the individual market if we had a permanent reinsurance program. Essentially what that means is if you have really high cost claims, you know, the patient that has either an extremely expensive cancer or rare disease, something like that. Um, after a certain threshold, there is a pool of money that kicks in and covers the cost. And by doing that, it keeps whoever is in that group or in that market, it keeps all of those premiums lower by helping to cover that individual, that very expensive individual. Uh, my fifth recommendation is we need to continue to encourage innovation in healthcare. Um, specifically because healthcare is an incredibly labor-intensive industry, you have people doing work at every single level, and that's incredibly expensive. If we can encourage innovation and make it easier to deliver and access care, that can help bring down overall costs because you're using less resources. And finally, kind of my point throughout this presentation, we need to help those on the margins. You know, the reality is while the healthcare system works well for a lot of people, some slip through the cracks. And if we, we need to figure out a solution to get to those people and so that we don't throw out the whole system with the bathwater because of that small group.
Um, so anyway, that is my overall arching um, presentation, and I'm happy to jump into questions and you know see if anyone has anything that I can elaborate on. Uh, great, thank you, Ariel. Um, as a reminder, if you would like to ask a question, you can do that in one of two ways. You can email us your question at info at businessfwd.org, or you can um, or you can just press one on your telephone keypad to ask your question live. Uh, we're still waiting for the queue to load for the live question, so I'm going to start with a few um, email questions. So, um, Arielle, at the end there, you talked a little about um, reinsurance, and this is a question from Charles Costa in Canton, Ohio. Um, I've heard a lot about high-risk pools. What's the difference in how those work, and which one do you think makes more sense? Um, I think reinsurance makes sense because it doesn't separate people out. Uh, a high-risk pool... We had a high-risk pool before, so essentially if you were a really sick person on the back end, you would be pulled out of the insurance pool that you were in, and you would be in this government-subsidized pool with very expensive people. Um, the main reason I, I prefer reinsurance model is because we, a lot of states had high-risk pools prior to the ACA, and they didn't really work. Um, they, they're very expensive and, you know, they're hard to administer. And also, you don't always know at the beginning of the year who's going to be in a high-risk pool. We, you don't always know who's going to be in that high-risk pool. And so it's, it's just harder. If you have a reinsurance program, you're doing it on the back end. The person doesn't need to oh, excuse me, doesn't need to do anything um, on their end, and, and they can get you know, continue to use the same health plan and all that stuff. Um, this is a question from Rebecca Hodgson from Scranton, Pennsylvania, and she's writing, I'm nervous about a government-run system if the ACA, ACA fails. You talked about taking care of people on the margins, but if we were faced with a government-run system, what would, would how would people who fall through those cracks be managed? It seems like they would have to fight with the United States bureaucracy. Yeah, I think, I mean, that's that's a big hypothetical. Um, I hope that we don't get to that situation. But I think that, um, yeah, I mean, think about the people who maybe who are slipping through the cracks in Medicare now and what that looks like for them. Um, maybe that's people who are dually eligible for Medicare and Medicaid, so low-income seniors. Uh, who need, you know, long-term care or something like that. You know, there's just a lot of administrative back and forth going back and forth, going back and forth between Medicare and Medicaid and trying to get your benefits covered and making sure, you know, there's just there's a lot of rules involved there. I mean, not that there aren't rules involved in commercial insurance. Um, yeah, I think that, you know, it would, we would have the same types of issues we're seeing now with the most vulnerable people. Um, thank you. The the next, I think I think it does the best that we're going to be able to do today. Um, I think the last question, the next question comes from Joanne Pendergrass in Cutler, Indiana. She said, can you walk us through a little bit of what would happen if the ACA is repealed and there's no replacement in place? Ooh. Um, yeah, I think what you would see, I think it would go back to the two, 
to, to be clear, this is a hypothetical, you know, situation, but I think it would go back to kind of the two-tiered system I was mentioning before. Um, you know, the, the bluer leaning states might try and shore up their own exchanges and figure out funding mechanisms to keep similar programs alive. But in the absence of federal government funding, either to cover the new Medicaid population or the subsidies, the subsidies for the individual market, I think that it would be really hard for states to afford it on their own. Um, and, and we would kind of slip back to like a pre-ACA system where, you know, where if you didn't get your insurance through work, it might be incredibly difficult to find a plan that covered the care that you needed. Okay, great, thanks. Our next question comes from Catherine Diaz, and she's saying, um, she, she's asking, I've heard a lot of Republicans on the campaign trail say that the bill that they voted for most recently to replace the Affordable Care Act would protect people with pre-existing conditions, but then I've heard the other side say that that's not the case. Can you talk a little bit about what the House did earlier this year and whether or not that plan would protect people with pre-existing conditions? Yes. So I think there's a lot of things at play, obviously. Um, what the bill would have done is that it would have allowed states to make a lot more decisions around um, policy coverage, and that included um, allowing basically rewriting the rules for pre-existing conditions. And so there, there are competing definitions of how that would affect it, but if you look at the CDO report, they did say that costs would increase and perhaps exponentially for those with pre-existing conditions. So I guess they're trying to say that, you know, because the federal government wouldn't, wouldn't you know, get rid of those protections, they didn't vote for that but they were allowing states to change those rules, and that would allow that particular group to be more vulnerable, particularly, again, in our kind of two-tiered system we have going on in states um, that prefer less government intervention in healthcare. Uh, so I, I think you know, that'll continue playing out, uh, but the reality is it would have loosened those protections and it would have, you know, depending on the state a person lived in, could have changed that reality on the ground. And, oh, I want one, addition, one additional point. I think it's even, you know, I forget what state she said she was in, but some states it's even more obvious because of that law that I mentioned. Um, there are 20 um, current GOP attorney generals trying to throw out the ACA, and specifically they're going after the the severability clause between the protections of um, those with pre-existing conditions and the individual mandate. And they're trying to say those two clauses go together. And therefore, if you got rid of the individual mandate, you need to get rid of the protections for pre-existing conditions. There are two people, two Republicans, who are currently signed onto that case as it's working its way through the courts and running for Senate and saying that they support protecting pre-existing conditions. So I think in those particular cases, which is um, West Virginia and I'm now forgetting the other states, but those are, those are like egregious, like not telling the truth. Um, okay, thanks. We have just time for about one more question here, and I think this is a good one to end on. Um, 
This is from Sandra Marshall, and she is writing from Bangor, Maine. And she said, you mentioned individuals at 400% of the poverty level facing higher insurance costs. Under a government-run program or Medicare for All, or some of the other proposals that we've seen, how would um, middle-income and maybe upper-middle-income families, um, pay, how, what changes would they experience to their taxes, and would their premiums go up? How would their out-of-pocket costs change? Well, it would be a shift in how you're paying for healthcare. Instead of paying for it, you know, via premiums and deductibles, you'd be paying for it in taxes. And that would, you know, because of the, these are all hypothetical proposals because we don't have, unless we're talking about like Bernie Sanders, Medicare for All, we don't have a particular bill in front of us. Um, but you would have to raise taxes, particularly on the higher-earning people, to cover the cost of providing care for everyone. Medicare, as it currently is, not as how it's written in Bernie Sanders' bill, still requires co-pays, co-insurance, and out-of-pocket costs. Um, so a lot of people have, like, Medigap plans to help cover those costs. But ultimately, as as it's currently run, Medicare is not free health insurance for everyone. If you're incredibly low income, you're also eligible for Medicaid, and that fills in the gaps. But um, the Bernie Sanders proposal would make it free, and then that would obviously be a very expensive model and involve raising taxes a significant amount to cover, um, you know, free health care for everyone. Um, thank you. Um, so that's all the time we have for today. Please check your email for today for a post-event survey where you can let us know what you thought of today's call and also send us any questions that didn't get answered. Additionally, we are working with business leaders around the country to, um, to advocate their position on behalf of uh, what they'd like to see happen with the Affordable Care Act. So feel free to send us an email to that info at businessfwd.org account if you'd like to get involved in any of that activity. So uh, again, thank you to Ariel Kane and to all of you who took time out of your busy schedules to join our webinar today. We look forward to working with you again soon. Thank you very much.